Mr. Doug Flynn joins the American Valor Podcast. Thank you to Gunnery Sergeant John Rose, who through his work with the Hope for the Warriors Foundation connected us with Mr. Flynn. You can hear from Gunnery Sergeant Rose back in our third episode. Doug Flynn played in the major leagues for 11 seasons from 1975 to 1985 for the Cincinnati Reds, New York Mets, Texas Rangers, Montreal Expos, and Detroit Tigers. Mr. Flynn is currently a broadcaster for the Cincinnati Reds, and he remains an active member in his community, supporting organizations including USA Cares and Hope for the Warriors. Doug Flynn, thank you for joining us on the American Valor Podcast. It's my pleasure. I know I apologize for us not being able to get together any sooner, but with your all schedule in mind, we finally got her done. I appreciate that. Well, we're glad to have you. So going back to the beginning, growing up in Kentucky, we uh, saw that your father played in the Dodgers organization before later becoming a Kentucky state senator, and your mother played fast pitch softball. What impact did your parents have on you, and what was it like growing up in Kentucky? Well, I'm, I'm a little partial. I love Kentucky uh, and having the opportunity to travel to several places. And this was always uh, my home uh, when the baseball scene was over I would always come back here but you know it was a smaller town than it is now it seemed as though everybody knew each other people would wave on the highway to each other they would allow you to come over if you put a blinker on it's a little bit different now we're a lot bigger but it was just a wonderful place to grow up as a young person a lot of youth activities on a lot of the families knew each other so if one parent had to work or another parent couldn't get you to the ballpark. You just make a phone call and somebody would come pick you up. So it was great. And then of course, having a mom that was a really good player and my dad was an outstanding player. As a matter of fact, when he came out of the army, he went to the university of Dayton and played basketball on their first NIT team. And then when he started working as I was growing up, my mom would always go out in the backyard and play catch with me so that, I could make sure that I was doing proper or doing things the proper way. So, yeah, I had just a blessed childhood. And uh, to this day, I still have a lot of great remembrances of coming up through the Little Leagues and the Pony League, Colt League, Bluegrass League, playing softball, and then eventually making it to the Major League Baseball. So I have no complaints about my upbringing whatsoever. So you mentioned your dad went and played basketball at Dayton. Um, you went and played basketball at Kentucky and baseball, um, how do you think playing multiple sports helped you develop as an athlete? Well, it started, you know, when I was younger, uh, I also played football in high school and I wasn't very good. As a matter of fact, I wasn't really very good at any of them, <laughs> but I, I was the kind of guy that, um, you know, I could not make your team better, but I could, I could fill in and do the little things like on quarterback. I knew all the plays. I could run the offense. You didn't have to worry about me fumbling or making a mistake. In basketball, I was a point guard. and I was very small, so my job was pretty simple, play good defense, dish. And, um, and then baseball sort of came a little more natural for me. And when I went to the University of Kentucky, it was probably the best growing up year professionally as far as sports go that I ever had because each day our freshman team would go scrimmage against the varsity the varsity had Mike Pratt, Dan Issel, and a bunch of great players. They were ranked number one in the nation. Ended up getting beat by Jacksonville and Artis Gilmore that year. But each day before our freshman practices, 
we would go out and scrimmage against the varsity. And if you didn't grow up, you walked out of that gym and found something else to do. So I'm thankful that I got a chance to go over there at least for a year and learn how to compete at a very high level. Yeah, and I'd say you were you're twelve and one as a starting quarterback. I'd say you're you're pretty good. Um, <laughs> well, I had a good running back. <laughs> that always we helps. A, our running back was a guy by the name of Frank Lamaster. He was a year younger than me, and he uh, ended up going on to play in linebacker Kentucky and then linebacker ten years in the NFL for the Philadelphia Eagles. So we just give the ball to Frank and watch him run, and then we. <laughs> <laughs> So then moving on from that, you went to college and then you went into the minor leagues. Do you have any stories from your minor leagues or any experiences that really stand out to you? Well, just getting to the minor leagues was probably the best story because I was going to a junior college my sophomore year. I'd been playing some softball during the week and baseball on the weekends, but I was not playing for the college. And some friends woke me up one day on a Saturday morning and said, we're all going to go try out for the Cincinnati Reds. And I said, let's go. So we headed to the ballpark. We get there, realize that nobody's got a glove or a pair of baseball shoes, except the guy that drove said, you know, I've got some in the trunk. And they said, Doug, you go first and try out. And what I realized now is they really didn't have any interest in trying out, but they had seen me develop and start playing a little bit better and felt like that if anybody had a chance to make it, that, that would be me. So I went to four different trial camps. I signed my first pro contract for $2,500 and then made it to the minor leagues. And the first year I was in the minor leagues, I was in rookie league. And it goes rookie league, A ball, double A, triple A, major league. So in rookie league ball, I was 20 years of age. And looking around me, all these other kids were, some of them were 16, 17, coming from a lot of different countries. And my manager asked me one day, he said, Doug, can you play third base? because the kid at Class A ball is going to have to have surgery. We need a third baseman. And I said, yes, sir, I can. I played there in high school. So they moved me up a level. After the first game, after the first inning of the first game, my manager calls me over, and he said, you've never played a game a third in your life, have you? And I went, nope. <laughs> and he said, well, what'd you lie for? Why'd you tell him? I said, look, it was a chance to move from a lower level to a higher level, and I figured I could learn. I played second and short. I figured how tough could third be. And so uh, my manager liked me and sort of stuck with me for a few years. And I moved up the ladder each year until 75 when I finally made it to the big leagues. April 9th, 1975. What was that experience like playing Major League Baseball for the first time? It was a little overwhelming, to be truthful with you, because growing up 80 miles south of Lexington, uh, south of Cincinnati, I was a, a Reds fan back in the days when they had Frank Robinson and Beta Pinson and Johnny Edwards and Gus Bale, just some really good teams in the early 60s when I was a young kid. And then all of a sudden now I'm getting an opportunity to go play with guys that have been in the World Series in 1970 and 1972. And I mean superstars like Pete Rose and Johnny Bench, Joe Morgan, Tony Perez, and so many others. And so – it, it was a little overwhelming, but the good news is that each and every one of those guys, and they were born leaders, they had a way of making everybody feel comfortable, knowing what your job was going to be, making you feel good that you were going to be able to complete that job, and then they were there to give you the backup and the confidence that you needed. And 
of course, 75 and 76 was pretty special. But, yeah, April 9th, we had 55,000 people, I think, at the ball game. Uh, I'm sitting there minding my own business, not bothering anybody, although I had played every spring training game prior to this one. And I hear my name called in about the eighth inning, and I run down to Sparky Anderson at the other end of the bench, and I said, yes, sir. He said, uh, I want you to go in there and bunt the runner over. We're going to win this game next inning. So I head out on deck, and I'm nervous because now 55,000 playing the Dodgers, my first at bat in the major league, and Pete Rose walks out behind me. And he looks at me, and he's got this little goofy grin on his face, and he said, you nervous? And I went, well, yeah, I am nervous. He said, what for? All you got to do is bunt. And I went, yeah, but – so we both kind of got a little chuckle out of it and, and uh, got the bunt down. Probably the most important at bat that I had in the big leagues because I believe if I don't get the job done, I'm probably sitting back down to AAA baseball. So wow. you mentioned the leadership that uh, was in the locker room. You had Sparky Anderson as well, and you ended up playing for Joe Torrey. How did guys like that yeah. impact a career? Well, uh, two different kinds, two different styles, but both tremendous people. Uh, Sparky was a great communicator uh, when it came to relating baseball to the media and getting facts and getting points across. Also, in those early days, Sparky really liked veteran ball players to be around his team. So the idea that me making the team as a rookie was a little odd, but Sparky could not have been nicer to me. And he was just, he's an he's a gentleman. You know, if you just wanted to describe somebody who was a real gentleman, that was Sparky. He was polite. He had great things to say. But when he spoke, he had a way of getting his point across in a kind of a stern way. Joe, on the other hand, was a little more laid back because he had played the game at a higher level. Sparky only played at the minor league level. But Joe had played at the higher level, uh, led the league at hitting one year, was a an imposing figure when he was playing the game. And But he – he would take up for you. I don't care what you did on the field, whether you were right or wrong, Joe was there to back you up. And I love Joe because he gave me a chance to play every day. When I got traded over there from Cincinnati, he told me I was going to be a second baseman and I played four years for him. I love him to death. He gave me uh, an opportunity and the confidence to go out and to be an everyday player. So yeah, both of those guys had great impact on my life. You, were just, you just mentioned being traded. Um, once you got traded, your playing time increased. Uh, you won a gold glove in 1980. Uh, and then you had some of your best offensive seasons. You know, some people say that once you get traded, it's a fresh start. Uh, a recent example being Gio Urshela, who's the Yankees now. Do you really think a change, of, a change of scenery allows a player to have that fresh start? I think it can. I don't think it always does. Uh, but I think it can. For instance, if you go from a Midwest town like I did to the big city where you're leaving a locker room that had four or five reporters to a locker room that has 75 reporters, uh, that can be very imposing. And if there's a lot expected from you and you don't get the job done, it can be very intimidating. When I went over in the trade, I was just one of four guys that got traded for Tom Seaver. And even though there are four of us, our best minor league prospect, one of our best young pitchers, uh, another minor league prospect than myself, when we went over there, I don't think any of us put unexpected uh, pressures on ourselves. But, man, it is totally different. And when you play in New York, you learn two things real quick. You keep your mouth shut and you play hard. If you do that and don't alibi and make excuses, the fans will be fine with you. 
but the game is so different now. In those days, if you look at the size of the middle infielders when we played, I mean, for instance, the Mets had Buddy Harrelson weighed 150 pounds. I weighed 165. Uh, Mark Belanger, a great shorts of Baltimore, probably weighed a buck 70. Ozzie Smith, you know, 160. So it's a whole different ball game now, the game of hitting behind runners, uh, getting bunts down, putting the ball in play. is so different than the game that we watch on television today. But, uh, you know, it's, it's still you got to hit it, catch it, and throw it. That's what it boils down to. And uh, I'm just thankful. You know, those were – that was some fun. Everywhere I got to go, there was something really good about it. But playing in New York, if you're a professional, there's nothing like it. <laughs> so you were really well-respected for being a, a good teammate who worked really hard throughout your career. Why do you think people respected you as a valuable member of the team and in, in your different roles throughout your career? And what qualities led you to make the most out of your talents in the major leagues? Well, I'd, I'd like to say I got the most out of it. I'm not sure I did. Uh, I know I, I would love to have been stronger and I would love to have been able to hit better and, you know, put myself in a better position to do that. But uh, Mark Blander said it one time. He said, there's two parts of this game. I'm just glad I was able to contribute to one. And that's kind of the way I feel about it sometimes. But, you know, it's a team game. Um, there's been a lot of great players that have played this game and you remember some of them, some of them you don't. But when you play on a team that is pulling for each other and has got each other's back, there's something special about that. And that's what we had for a couple of years in Cincinnati when we went back-to-back World Series. I don't think at the time we realized how special that was. We do now, uh, after all these years, having had two or three of the guys pass away and a lot of guys getting a little bit older. Shoot, I was the baby on that team, and I'm 68 now. And I look at Pete Rose is 78, Morgan is 77. Guys are getting older, but what I learned from them is that it is a team game. They were great players, but it makes it so much more fun when, when you're not afraid to pull for somebody to do well. The teams that lose, you've got guys in the minor leagues or that come up that are trying to get your job, and they could care less if you broke a neck or a leg or anything else. With good teams, though, you find out that everybody has a job to do. Everybody does it pretty well, and they're not ashamed who gets the credit for it. So that's kind of the way that I was brought up and kind of the impact that I had, I think, on some of the other teams in high school. And it sort of carried on over when I got up to the pros. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned that because we interviewed Brad Ziegler uh, previously. And one of the things that he really opened my eyes to was that he, he mentioned that competition for jobs, you know, uh, guys would go in, relievers, based, he re- talked about uh, leaf pitchers specifically. Guys would go in and hope, you know, maybe the closer or the setup guy gets shelled so that maybe they could yeah. move into that position. Um, and with team dynamics, honestly, that's, that's not great. And since, you know, you mentioned the consecutive championships, um, three teams have repeated. The Yankees did it twice in 77-78 and then 98-2000. to 2000, And then the Blue Jays did it in 92 and 93. How difficult is it to buy into that team mentality? Um, and how difficult is it to repeat? It's, uh, you know, it's funny because it's tough to repeat for most teams, but after we won in 1975, 76 was a cakewalk <clears throat> because there was so much pressure on the stars on that Reds team because they had been beaten 70 by Baltimore, 72 by Oakland, 73 by the Mets and the 
um, league division didn't even get to the to the World Series. And so 75, they were kind of becoming the best team to never win at all. So there was a lot of pressure on them. And then we have the great World Series with Boston going to the uh, – Carlton Fisk has the home run that sends us to game seven. And then, uh, you know, there we went at four to three on a, in a really good ball game. And then after that was over, you could just feel a sigh of relief from all of these guys. So we started the season in 1976 with kind of a chip on the shoulder, like, all right, we've won one, now we'll just go win another one. And then I actually thought that we would probably win three, four, five in a row, but they traded Tony Perez after the 76 season and then started going and getting some other players, and the chemistry just wasn't the same as it was when we were all there together. You know, that chemistry can be uh, – you don't hear a lot about it. Uh, you certainly don't hear about it on losing teams. But when you have winning teams, that's one of the first things people start bringing up is the relationship that guys have. And, you know, I think for – I learned a long time ago, you're not playing for that name uh, that's on the back. You're playing for that name that's on the front of the jersey, and that's usually where the team name is put. If you get those things together and everybody's on the same page, it's amazing how much fun this game can be. Yeah, and, and playing basketball, you know, you think of team chemistry more so with that and football, like quarterback with receiver. Um, but people don't really think about that all the time with baseball uh, and having team chemistry and how that can actually impact the game. I'll give you a for instance. I was playing with a team. I won't say which one. Uh, <clears throat> but my wife was sitting in the stands. I hadn't been married but about a month. And sitting there, and I uh, got knocked down on a double play ball. And some – lady sitting behind my wife said oh god I hope he broke his leg I hope he broke his leg it turned out to be a player that was trying to get my jobs wife and mother <laughs> and I get knocked down and they're sitting there saying and my wife said she turned around she went that's my husband uh, so yeah there's there's a lot of that in the game but you know it's on teams that weren't very good I never saw any of that with Cincinnati it was an honor to get a chance to be on that roster but when you got a team that's struggling, everybody seems to think they can make it better. So you hear more of that stuff when your team's not playing too well. Yeah, and, and you know that chemistry, you talked about how you're still friends with a lot of those guys from that team. Uh, you and Johnny Bench, I hear you guys might – your most impressive teamwork might uh, be the Children's Charity <laughs> Classics Celebrity Golf Tournament Cabernet Night. Uh, <laughs> you need to come. <laughs> it is a – it is a fun deal. We, we've we been very blessed with the tournament that next year will be celebrating its 40th year. Uh, we've raised somewhere over $16 million for kids across country, really. Uh, it's based out of Lexington, Kentucky. Uh, we have 30 to 40 charities that will benefit, but kids are coming in from all over our state and other states. And, you know, you're right. It is It is a cool thing to see. Uh, how long this tournament's last because when you look around the country there's not many tournaments of our size and our kind that last this long and for various reasons they bust up but it's really become a labor of love and I'm so proud of Johnny that when he got involved he didn't just put his name on it I mean he wants to know what's going on at board meetings he comes every year he participates and you know that was a start I mean we'd been really good friends before but that was kind of the start of us getting involved in a whole lot of stuff together. What are, what are the, some of the uh, other things that you're involved in supporting our country? 
Well, uh, we uh, Johnny and I together will do uh, Hope for the Warriors, which uh, we got started in that, I don't know, maybe 15, 16 years ago. It wasn't Hope for the Warriors then because I think they've only been around 10 or 11. But when we got started, we went to a tournament at Camp Lejeune. And the tournament was part of the Celebrity Players Tour event. And we would actually go, and they would guarantee us money. And if you played good golf, you were guaranteed to win more money. And I'm riding back one day uh, with my wife, because we always drive to those events. And I'm riding home, and I'm going, you know, this just doesn't sit right with me. I mean, we're coming down here to raise money for these military guys, and, and yet we're getting paid to do that. I just don't feel right about it. So the next year, I just sent out a little memo to a few of my friends, and I said, all right, here's something I'm involved with. I think you should be too. But but, but even before that, I've got a good friend that was in Vietnam, and he got busted up pretty good. He came back home to Kentucky and walked on to the University of Kentucky, uh, tried out for a baseball team, made the team, and became an all-conference player. And then when I got out of baseball in 86, I started playing pro softball with him and I have so much respect for him because of what he'd been through. He never talked about him getting shot up and busted up, but man, what an athlete. His name was Gerald Belcher and uh, he and I, we still remain very good friends, but I always said, what can I do to help out guys? And he said, just exactly what you're doing. Go down and visit, talk to them and and, uh, help raise some money for all the good things that they're trying to do with our wounded guys and, so uh, I said, I'll take a little bit of money. So because of General Bob Dickerson, who was base commander, um, it, it I had a little talk with him. It kind of piqued my interest even more. He said, Doug, here's the best thing you could do. So I called up Johnny and I said, all right, I got something for us to do. And he said, what's that? And I said, we're going to be involved in, uh, in helping them raise money down here. He went, okay. And then we do some for USA Cares as well. And, you know, there's there's three charities, not, I, I don't want to call them charities, three organizations that I really am proud of because they're giving anywhere from 87 to 91% of the money is going right where it belongs. That's USA Cares, Hope for the Warriors, and one called Save a Warrior. Save a Warrior is dealing primarily with PTSD. Hope for the Warriors is dealing with families and wounded and a lot of things. And then uh, USA Cares is just kind of doing nuts and bolts. A spouse gets deployed. You're out there helping them raise money, pay the rent, get the mortgage taken care of. So and I, it, what blows me away is that the government's not doing it. Um, you know, these people have made so many sacrifices so that I could fulfill a dream of playing professional baseball. And I just, uh, Johnny and I both just feel like we're humbled that they would even allow us to be a part of helping out. And we've got so many trends that we've met over the years, uh, guys that are still in the service, guys that have come out, guys that have been wounded, that we can call up on the phone and talk to and encourage them. And, you know, I just feel like we've been very blessed that we have been allowed to be a part of the military family. Now, Johnny was in the National Guard when he was uh, uh, playing ball. Uh, I wasn't, but he got in, I think, in the late 60s. I went to college for two years and I started playing ball. And so, uh, but, you know, it's just, a way that you can give back and for people that listen to this and you say, I don't know how I can help out. Well, here's a plenty of ways. You just go to the websites, look them up and uh, I will promise you, you will not be disappointed. That's great. We've 
we've been honored to have Johnny Bench and um, Gunnery Sergeant Rose join us on previous podcasts. And um, I think they both spoke to what it, what it meant to them to be able to support organizations that give back. Jonathan, he's the best. I'm going to see him again in, I guess, in uh, October the 17th in Washington. But, man, to see how he has grown uh, from when I first met him after he first started rehabbing, what a cool guy. And, uh, matter of fact, last time down at Camp Lejeune, I got to play golf with him. He was one of my partners. So we had a blast. And, and that's just something I put on the calendar before we do anything is is to go down and hang out with the guys. A lot of times they want to hear stories. A lot of times they want to tell stories. And you just kind of figure out where you are and, and then let it ride. But, you know, when you go down to a place like Wallace, North Carolina, and that community and opens up their hearts and their hotels and their homes and everything so that we can bring all of our military guys in, play golf, fish a little bit, and, uh, you know, turn a very serious subject into a fun couple of days. Man, it's one of the highlights of my whole year every year. You talked about sharing stories, and uh, what some people might not know is that during the, the uh, Major League Baseball strike in 1981, you went on tour with the Oak Ridge Boys. How was that? <laughs> you have any cool stories from that? Yeah, but I can't tell you. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was uh, <clears throat> it was awesome. Those guys have been friends. I think we met in the 70s. Johnny introduced me to them back in the 70s when we were playing. And so we'd always tease. The, and I sing a little bit in the off season. So I called them up one day, and we were just talking. And I said, man, this strike is ugly. They said, well, why don't you go on the road with us? And I said, well, I don't know when the strike's going to be over. They said, well, just go with us and strikes over we'll just send you home i said all right so i joined them in nashville and we jumped on a bus and headed i don't know all over the place and it was really exciting i love them they're they're just wonderful people uh and i grew up listening to gospel music i loved anything with four-part harmony and of course the oaks are as good at that as anybody and and then one night they got me up on stage to sing a little bit and it, it's just you know, that's one of the cool things about what I got to do playing ball. I've met so many neat people and been able to travel to a lot of places. And so the Oaks have been dear friends, uh, the Gatlin brothers. And both of those groups are doing a lot of stuff for military families. Excuse me. Uh, the Gatlin's dad, Curly's a Marine. And uh, they're touring everywhere. They've written songs about it. Uh, so that's two groups right there that have certainly are not ashamed to stand up for this country and to give back to our military men and women. So since leaving the game, you're still pretty active in it though. Uh, you're in the, you're a broadcaster for the Reds. Uh, what are the odds we see a Johnny Bench, Doug Flynn duo in the box in coming years? <laughs> wow. Uh, they're, they'd be scared of us. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I say that because you got two guys that are fairly opinionated. Johnny's a little more than I am. Uh, two guys that remember the game how it was, uh, not really excited about the direction that the ball game's going now. Um, so I don't think there's probably a chance of that, but you never know. I wouldn't write it out. There may be a chance that you find the, us doing something together as a duo, but I don't know. You know, Johnny loves to sing. Maybe we'll do a, a little song together or something somewhere. <laughs> maybe if we, maybe if, is the, if the Lieutenant Dan band's going to be in Washington, maybe they'll let us get up and sing one with him. Oh, I bet they would, for sure. 
Hey, are they going to be there? Do you know? Oh, I'm not sure. But we can, oh, we can get cool. back to you on that. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you mentioned that. that you guys might not like the way the game's going right now. What is it specifically? Do you think that it's, um, you know, the shifting and watching people just hit straight into the shifts? I know, I know that that irks me a little bit, but um, and Johnny, well, that I'm sure he had a opinion. I, I can't. Here's what I can't believe. I can't believe that when you got a whole side of the infield open, that a guy can't hit a ground ball through there. That's what I can't believe. I mean, even bad hitters could do that, but these guys are getting paid to hit home runs. And someone asked me if the ball was juiced. Well, every rec, every home run record's being broke this year. And in the minor, in Triple A baseball, they use the same baseball that the major leagues are using, and they've hit two thousand more home runs. Jeez. So yes, there's no doubt in my mind that the ball is juiced. Plus, there's so many things that go into it. Nobody's, there's no disgrace to strike out anymore. I mean, guys will either hit a home run or strike out. But you know, in the old days, you, you tried to protect the plate. You didn't want to strike out. But these guys, I mean, they're stri- even good hitters. They're striking out a lot because they're trying to get them to launch angle it. And, and then pitchers are getting out there and they're throwing a thousand miles an hour, but they can't throw it over the plate. So after five innings, they got 110 pitches and they come out of the game. And then you bring another guy in there and they wonder why there's so many arm injuries going on and oblique injuries. Well, guys are throwing hard, hard as they can and swinging as hard as they can. I don't like all of the instant replays on every single play. I don't like that you can't slide into second and take out the guy anymore. You got to slide and, and avoid contact. So there's just there's a lot about the game that I'm not a big fan of, and, and that's just like an old guy talking. I call it an OMR. I'm having an old man rant about the game <laughs> of baseball. I just uh, you know there's some great talent though. There's some big kids and some talented kids, but the object is to win the ball game, and you're seeing teams now that. I mean, when you don't have 45 or 50 wins, that's embarrassing. Yeah, absolutely. Doug, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on. I've had a lot of fun. Hey, the pleasure's been all mine. And uh, thank you guys for what you're doing, man. This, this is awesome. Good deal. Thank you for listening to the American Valor Podcast. The podcast is produced with support from an Angel's Touch publishing company, the publisher of Walk of Heroes, Profiles of Valor. Created in support of the Active Valor Foundation, This limited edition book illustrates the 37 National Baseball Hall of Famers who served in the United States military during World War II, including Warren Scon, Yogi Berra, and Bob Feller. Please consider ordering a copy of this commemorative issue in support of the Bob Feller Foundation. Proceeds fund our military scholarship program for 2020 and are tax deductible. Simply go to actofvalorward.org and visit shop to order your limited edition book or follow the support the show link in the notes to the podcast. Join us next time when we are joined by Marine Steve Gonzalez speaking about transitioning from a career in the military to the civilian world, as well as his experiences and perspectives from Capitol Hill. For updates on the podcast, our educational projects and other events, follow the Bob Feller Foundation on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Active Valor Award. For Tyler Buckholtz, my name is Nathaniel Cameron. This has been the American Valor Podcast.